You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Friends, this is going to be a rare episode in that it's the unusual occasion where I'm on the other side of the mic. You know, obviously, usually I'm uh, interviewing guests, asking the questions, but on this episode, I'm being asked the questions. I, I joined Aaron Keyes recently. Aaron's this really neat fellow. He, he's the founder of 10,000 Fathers. It's a community for worship leaders. It's also a discipleship and mentoring community. It's really holistic in its approach. Aaron's been leading that for several years, and he also hosts a podcast of the same name, the 10,000 Fathers podcast. And he had asked if I would come on the show and not just talk about my book, but really get into talking about the ways that we apply the MLA tools in our own church, not just on our staff, but actually church-wide. It's a fantastic interview, and I'd asked Aaron ahead of time if I could bring some friends of mine so that this could be a dialogue, not just me. So I brought with me Jimmy Carnes and Mariah Vasquez. Jimmy's been working with me for several years. In fact, he's actually certified in the MLA tools. He does coaching himself uh, for people who want to deal with MLA. But then we also brought Mariah because Mariah is one of our newer employees and she's early on the journey with the MLA tools. And so what you're about to hear is Aaron being the host on his podcast. I asked if I could just grab the audio and pop it on our feed here. And so you'll hear me chatting, but you'll also hear from Jimmy and Mariah. And I think the three different perspectives and the three different experiences are really going to be an asset to you as you're navigating 2021. So I'm now going to turn over to Aaron and he'll kind of set us up, and, and, and I should warn you, this is a longer episode. We probably went almost an hour and a half, but hopefully some good stuff for you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's a doozy of an episode today, guys. I'm Aaron Keyes. I'm in the studio today with Steve Cuss, lead pastor at Discovery Church near Denver, also the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety. We're going to talk all about it. We've also got Jimmy Carnes, worship pastor as well as Mariah Mantress, another worship pastor. You're going to love this. These guys are amazing. Enjoy. I'm so happy that you guys are here. I'd love just to hear a little bit of each of your stories before we jump into this content. And Steve, we can start with you. Yeah. So, yeah, great to be with you, by the way, Aaron. Yeah, this is fun, too, to come down together. Um, and I'm thrilled that we're doing this in a group because my favorite way to talk about this material is in a group of people. So Externalizing. Yeah, right. Externalizing. Yeah. So the short story for me, I grew up unchurched in Australia, Perth. Um, came to Christ as a teen. My oldest sister led me to Christ. And so I have a really secular heritage. So to this day, none of my family are believers except my sister and I. Um, and then I moved to America to study theology. Um, it's, it's a long story, but it was really my best opportunity to get a great theological education. Plus, Aussies are kind of adventurous. We all like to travel. So it was those two things combined. Moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, which was a big shock for a beach kid. And then out of that, I accidentally stumbled into hospital chaplaincy uh, just because I needed a year of work. I was brand new married, and they paid enough, and so I took the job. And that turned out, which is really the basis of the book, that turned out to be um, life-changing. Yeah. Uh, and then bounced around, and I, I've been now a lead pastor at a church in Colorado for 15 years. Um, 
So that's kind of it. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I want to talk more about the chaplaincy stuff, but let's go to you next, Mariah. Sure. Uh, I grew up in Colorado, and I grew up in a Christian home and kind of a part of worship music all through high school. And then I went to college for musical theater, and after about two years, decided that was not the path, and I wasn't really walking with the Lord at that point either. Um, And I took about a year to go through a lot of (laughs) soul searching, and I decided to go to ministry school and try to figure out if I really was about this God thing. And it was amazing, and I totally reinvented the way I thought of Christ and who I was in Him. And then uh, after two years there, I took an internship in Northern Ireland um, leading worship as my final year at school. And Finished up there, came back to Colorado, and was looking for a job as a worship pastor here because I love Colorado, and God opened a really cool door, and I'm close to family, and I'm at a great church, and it's just been really, really cool. So, And yeah. a newlywed. Congratulations. Yeah. Got married oh. a month ago. Yeah. Wow, we're yeah. going to get into marriage advice. <laughs> yeah. You've got fresh eyes. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be an awesome Christmas for you. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah, cool. We already got our tree, my first <laughs> real tree ever. Yeah. So. Yeah. Congratulations. Love it. And Jimmy, you were the worship pastor, pre-Mariah. Now you're doing kind of oversight. Tell us some of your story. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I was born and raised in Georgia and came out to Colorado for no other reason but just to be in Colorado. Didn't really have uh, anything waiting for us out here, but I moved out here in 2012. And um, I've done a bunch of different things. And really, this job is the first one I've had for uh, longer than maybe three years. So I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, going on maybe eight, nine years now. Um, Jimmy can fly a helicopter, by the way. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I came out here to do was to go to flight school. So I got almost there, just like the story of so many things, and uh, took the job at the church. So I actually don't have a private license. I'm a check right away. So, could you work yeah. on that? Because I would love to heli-ski, but it's kind of expensive. So if you could just drop me and steve off at the top of a mountain you know, you know yep steve had similar ideas you know for a grand opening we, we thought we'd involve helicopters it never never panned out yeah yeah my dream when we moved into our building was that jimmy would fly me in for the first sunday oh, yeah. but then we realized now our worship leader is stuck in a helicopter so yeah i hadn't thought I never really got off the ground um yeah so then uh, I, I joined discovery back in 2012 and um encountered steve's material not long after that we were one of the guinea pig kind of groups that he was kind of formulating this with and made a huge impact on the way that I show up as a leader um, within what I do with worship arts, but otherwise. And so um, I really got um, excited about, about the material and dug in. And now I help him facilitate um, some courses that he does and uh, just really love it. Amazing. Okay. Well, I'm excited about this conversation for lots of different reasons. I loved the book, Steve. Really helped me. And like I mentioned before we hit record, Um, This book just named stuff that I was struggling with, but I didn't have the name for. So the double binds, triangulating, all this. I mean, childhood vows I'd heard heard of, obviously. But so much stuff in this book put language to struggles that were just, before this, were just vague, kind of, I guess it's always going to be this way. So I'm excited about chatting through this book. I I can't recommend it highly enough for anyone listening to this. But I'm also excited about Jimmy and Mariah, you guys being here, to be able to not only talk from a worship leader perspective, but just from a leader working with a leader as aware and as kind of productive, um, not productive like just personally, but collectively helpful and generative. These are just so many tools in this book, I think, that help us all grow in our leadership. So 
I'm so excited about chatting with you guys. I kind of don't even know where to start. Um, I'd love maybe just to start with you, Steve. Like, if if I was coming to you as a leader saying, I'm stuck, I need help, what do you do? Like, wh where do you start with a leader who wants to grow but doesn't really know how to? Yeah, what a great question. So so you almost always start with the leader's own awareness. Like, like that's what we hear a lot is what you said is people like, I, I've always known there was something, but I didn't know what it was. And so we tend to just name what you already feel is how we describe it. Oftentimes when we're teaching the class, whether it's me or Jimmy or we've got a couple of other facilitators, we'll say, you may not learn anything new, but we're going to actually put a name to something you already know. And then we're going to give you a tool of what to do about it. And that's the second piece is people, that, the, the tragedy is people don't realize it doesn't have to be this way. That's what I get really excited about is that there is a pathway through. So step number one is okay, how aware is the leader on their own well-being? Uh, most of us are the last to know when we're not okay. So that would be the first one, and we normally start with physiology. If, if a leader can get the hang of what's going on in their body, and that sounds way more like ethereal than it is. It's just like, do you know when you're anxious? And so if, for your listeners, if they don't know when they're anxious, then they, all they have to do is ask someone who loves them. How do you know when I'm anxious when I don't know? And the loved one will tell you. And if you have kids, once your kids are about the age of eight or seven, they can tell you. So everyone around you knows. Um, and then in, in our definition of anxiety, it's not worry and fear. It's much deeper than that. So having someone tell you when you're anxious and then just believing them, that, that's where I would start. Once you become aware of it, now you have power to do something. Yeah. So how, how about you guys for Jimmy and Mariah? How has... Being around Steve, or even working through this content for yourselves, what what's been some of the first places that this gave you a foothold to grow in this area? What were some of those first handholds that were helpful for you guys practically? Yeah, I'll jump in. I, I think that one of the big turning points for me was realizing how much energy I put into spinning just after something had already happened. You know, spinning about should I have said it that way, or what could I have done differently and all the energy that I was using um, that I couldn't get back. And to, to be able to put that energy into, you know, exploring systematically, you know, what I believe, how I show up, like the, the freedom that's on the other side of some of these things that, that bind us down and using, recapturing that energy to use in real time, you know, looking forward to things that haven't happened yet versus trying to, to live in the spinning of, woulda, shoulda, coulda. That was, a, that was a big change for me. That's huge. How about you, Mariah? Uh, I think just being able to name it and say it's real and say and provide tools to work with it. I come from a background that's very, well, let's pray for it. Let's cast it out. Let's, you know, like, you're no need to be anxious or whatever. And then that's still there. And then you're like, well, what's wrong with me that I still feel anxious after going to all this stuff and having all this prayer and just being able to recognize that like God actually gives us tools to be able to work with that. And it's a normal human thing to struggle with anxiety. And actually it's not any less miraculous to be able to um, work through that with tools like what Steve has. Yeah. So good. I, I, one of the things I really liked in this book, you, you talk about a non-anxious leader, not just being someone who's not personally anxious, but they're not even brought into other people's anxiety. Can you process that a little bit externally? Because that was really helpful for me. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, one of the biggest lessons I learned is um, the emergency room, it doesn't create a condition a family's in, it reveals it. So obviously somebody's coming in on a gurney, but right after that happens, there's a family coming in of loved ones and whatever condition they were in as a family before the crisis, that's going to be exposed in the crisis, right? So a lot of our people right now are blaming 2020 for the condition of their soul. And I'm trying to tell as many people as I can, 2020 just revealed your soul. It didn't create what's going on. So as a chaplain, I was trained really early. How do you meet a group of people and notice what's going on between them and how it's affecting you? And so anxiety is contagious. So if you can, if you can learn to walk into a room and actually measure the anxiety and notice it happening between people, it gives you all this power to not catch it. And man, like in a band setting, you know, you talk about a grumpy bass player showing up late and the whole band being infected. Yeah. This is where the rubber has hit the road. Like I know with Jimmy's leadership is yeah. like, what do you do? Do you pretend it's not happening? Do you call it out? Now there's no, like, I don't think either one of us would say there's like a set formula, but just having that awareness of now, okay, now I know what's going on. Now I can, have power to decide what to do. It really de-escalates de your own anxiety. And I love what Jimmy said. A lot of your anxiety happens in the debrief. You go home and then you're just spinning and you're like, oh, I could have, should have, would have done this. And then, you, then the next time you're with that band, you're actually anxious before you walk into the room. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you can actually have a set of tools to not live that way is, I think, the good news, yeah. How would you guys articulate the just this... The feeling of anxiety. How do you name that? What's words for that? Because it's, it's not like a, one of the seven deadly sins, right? right? And it's not something I've ever heard sermons about, unless someone was preaching on be anxious for nothing kind of thing. Yeah, which is normally they're telling you off. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like yeah. what you were saying, right? Like, just pray and get over it. Um, but anxiety does seem to be on the uptick with pre passing years. Um, how do you even begin to articulate what anxiety you know, feels like? I don't like. know if this is in your book, Steve, but uh, I've heard you say many times, and you can take it from here, but just the competing for the space of, of where the Holy Spirit resides. That, that, that's something that um, I don't know that I could flesh it out with the right words, but it's something that I can feel to where I, I don't know that I'm very attuned to the, the truth and the good news that, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, when it's anxiety that's consuming my thought process. I, I, I can't get to the good news. It's like um, an obstacle that, that keeps me from receiving the good news of the gospel. And there's so many other things too. That's all the things that I'm pursuing right now are all just different tools and ways to look at the, the stories we tell ourselves. And almost all of them are, are less good news than the gospel. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's like five major forms of anxiety. So it's like a especially in our culture now, it's a word that we use broadly. The only form of anxiety we deal with in my book and in our class is what's called chronic anxiety. So I, I want to be careful. Every time we talk about it, I always want to name, like for people who have had an actual trauma, our tools can be helpful, but that's a whole different, that, that's a whole different skill set. But chronic anxiety is the number one anxiety for all leaders and parents. And because it's based on a false need, so when that grumpy bass player shows up, uh, what do you need him or her to do? And whatever they're not doing is making you anxious. 
So, so it's, it's simply the science and it takes quite a while to figure out, okay, what is it that I think I need that I don't really need? And because it's built on false need, then it's built on false belief. And that's where what Jimmy was saying gets into it is now it's competing with the gospel because you now got lies versus truth. And that's why prayer doesn't always work. It's like the most unspiritual thing a preacher can say. Sometimes prayer makes it worse. No way. Sometimes prayer really helps. But sometimes you pray and it doesn't go away and then you just go into shame. Well, I'm obviously not a very good Christian or whatever. So the idea that instead of that, you can actually do a deeper work and say, okay, what is it I think I need that I don't really need? So for me, one of my guaranteed sources of anxiety is going to be if I think someone's disappointed at me. Um, I got a text a couple of weeks ago, and it's a person who loves me, one of my key leaders, very good person. And she said, hey, uh, can we meet? I need it to be this week in person. It's about the church. And I didn't want to tell you before the sermon. Well, that's enough signs for me to know, ah, this is going to be a bad meeting. And so I've got two choices now. I can spin. And what I would typically do is I've decided someone's angry or disappointed or I'm not enough. And then I go into what I tend to do is I I try to preempt the meeting with every possible scenario. But then it gets ridiculous, like all the possible things that she wants to meet about. She only wants to meet about one thing, but I've come up with 12. That's one option. The other option is to say, ah, she's a good human being. We have a good relationship. She might have a great thing. It might be hard, but it may be a real gift. And what do I know to be true about the gospel versus the story I'm telling myself? So it's fairly nuanced. But but if people can start to get the hang of what they think they need that they don't really need. so. We could put you on the spot if you want to play. Yeah. What would be what would be something that you think you need that you don't really need? Like for me, it'd be impressing people, having the, always being right, always knowing the answer. Yeah, I've recognized being here in a new place for six months after being in the last place for twenty years. All kinds of stuff has come to the surface that I didn't know I carried, and it's been very exposing for me to realize, wow, I need to be perceived as important. I was but I'm not anymore, you know, or it doesn't feel that way. Um, I was a key thought leader and stuff, and here I'm a little bit more of a bit player, it feels. Um, And so it's exposed all kinds of stuff in me. And kind of to go back to what you said, Jimmy, I can't believe how exhausting anxiety is. Like once, um, I I just, I'm so tired at 8 p.m., not just because it's getting dark at at 2 (laughs) p.m., But I'm so tired, and I think it's because at the end of the day, my my pathology or something has been processing so much anxiety and shame and stuff that it. W- I'm sure it was there six months ago before we moved or whatever, but it's really firing now that physically I find myself so tired. Um, and I didn't used to be that way. Help me. <laughs> How do you help, guys? Yeah, I think I think along that same line of thinking that sometimes it's easy to name things, you know, when you say, if I always want to be right, it's pretty easy to say, I don't always need to be right. But there are things, um, you know, when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, um, that's those are the most nefarious for me is saying something like responsibility. So that's if, if I'm perceived as less than fully responsible, I'm not okay. Um, and that's... That's counter to the good news of the gospel, that, that my okayness shouldn't come from whether I'm responsible or not. Now, that doesn't mean that I should stop being responsible. So it's a difficult thing to tackle, right? It's like, 
there has to be a space where I can be less than perfectly responsible and still feel value as a human without going, oh, well, that suddenly turns into a slippery slope. I'm going to stop showing up for work or, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of room in between what I think is acceptable and what's still a valued uh, pursuit, if that makes any sense. And, And that's where I I personally still get stuck a lot there of trying to divide that naming this thing I need that I don't really need when you can't just throw it out. It's not like I need, I'm just going to stop being responsible because it's making me too anxious. Right. So what I've heard you talk, Steve, about um, brave action. And oh. you, you actually gave an ex- ex- illustration one time of preaching a ter- an intentionally bad sermon. Oh, yeah. Is that real? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And you did that because why? Because I was a slave to needing every sermon to be amazing. Yeah, so my anxiety was if if I need to look brilliant, which is one of my knee, I want to always look like, man, this guy is so smart. Oh, it's not me. You know, that kind of nonsense. Um, then in a, ser- a sermon becomes a weekly opportunity to feed that idol. Um, and then my, my well-being and the well-being of people I loved would rise and fall, not on whether the sermon was good, but on if I thought it was good, which is two completely different things. I think, Worship leaders have the same, where our perception of how it went versus how it went is completely unreliable. So yeah, brave practice is, it's kind of this diabolical jujitsu move where whatever it is you're most trying to avoid, you intentionally do that. Um, And so yeah, like when Mariah came, Jim and I both sat her down, I think together and separately, and gave her the spiel we give most of our staff, particularly our staff that do have a more public role. Like Mariah now has a suddenly very public role. She doesn't have a chance to kind of ease her way in. And we just kept saying, look, all you really need to be is exactly human size. And you have nothing to prove. I don't know if you remember this, Mm -hmm. but we told you many times. (laughs) Like you have not. And if you try to prove yourself, it's going to be worse because rather than being human, you're now, you know, living out of all this anxiety. So, Mm -hmm. so yeah, brave practice is an essential part of what we do. And I, I still practice it. So with that text that came in, this was like two weeks ago. I, I bravely practiced that night. Right. Oh, so um, wh- one of the big misnomers is that, that people think you can eliminate anxiety and you can't. You can just manage it. So I let my mind go nuts for an hour. Because what happens is if you try to eliminate it, you get more anxious. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, what's wrong with me? I should be able to eliminate it. So I just let my mind run free for an hour. Then I intentionally started observing what was going on in my mind. Is and what what's true and what's not true. Now sometimes you need to write it down, um, but once I got clear on wait because I was starting to go paranoid, which is what anxiety does, and then each of my different paranoid options, none of them could all be true. So then it becomes like this is crazy. So then I have some prayers that I use to displace it, and then I do something life giving. So I went and took my jog my dog for a jog. My dog, my puppy is life-giving, getting outside is life-giving and talking to God about it. And so it was about a 90-minute to 100-minute, I timed it, a 90 to 100-minute experience from the text to relaxing. What's interesting is I've got plenty of stories where I failed, but we still haven't met. She's forgotten. <laughs> I, I reached out. Here's all the times I, I kind of anxiously said, let's get a meeting going. Oh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy, she said. And we haven't met. And I'm completely relaxed. I have no idea what she wants to meet about. But it's not hanging over your head. It's not depleting your energy. Two hours, tops. 
now old me two weeks and two and i and i and then what i would do is i get angry at her anger fantasies i can't believe you're doing this to me the the deal is it's got nothing to do with her that's the thing as i know that's the text that makes every church leader go crazy i, I know that but it has nothing to do with her it's all about me so that's that's some of the tools it's always hard in a podcast because we talk but these are tools we actually teach people in writing to so talk to me about your course because we obviously have designed a course as well. Ours is an 18-month thing. We take people through all kinds of tools. We haven't incorporated yours yet, but I think we're going to need to because a lot of it's been so helpful for me personally. And a lot of your tools are now just in the vernacular around new life. You know, when so we've actually I've heard the language from your book about is this is this triangulation, you know? Is this that? And, and that's been really helpful for us as a culture, I think, to get on the same language um, and start moving forward. Um, I was going to ask you a question. I totally lost it thinking about how helpful this has been for us at New Life. Um, oh, my goodness. Totally spaced. Yeah, we can talk about what we do as a church. We're going to have to edit this out. Oh, oh, yeah, I wanted to ask, though. So if people wanted to um, look into the course, I'm not trying to wrap this up already, and how do they find out more? But... How would people find out more about if they want to take the course? Can anyone sign up for it? How does it work? So, so we're launching in 2021. It's a, it's a course called Capable Life. And the first three letters are capable, a C-A-P. So that's calm, aware, present. So people can go to capablelife.me or they can go to capablepastor.me uh, and they can sign up. It's not available yet. We'll actually launch it right before Christmas. But it's going to be all of our discovery stuff, but it's virtual. So it'll be 10-minute videos, uh, all in modules of themes. So if you do triangulation, there'll be one video on triangulation. But it'll be in a module of 29 different sources of anxiety in one module. Um, trying to think of what else, Jimmy. Like, we'll, we do genograms, which is family of origin. But the genogram will be one course in a series on family of origin. So anyone can sign up. It's super affordable for church staff. It's like $28 a month each. There's a monthly Zoom. So actually Jimmy, for example, is one of the facilitators that'll be on a monthly Zoom where you can get on with Jimmy. You can ask questions. You can present a case. He'll put you into virtual chats with three other, four other people. Um, we'll do master classes where you can go deeper. But the heart of the course is these 10-minute nugget-sized tools with monthly Zooms with a facilitator. So CapableLife.me, that's going to be our best offering. We've been trying all kinds of things since the book came out. That's going to be our best offering. Yeah. Um, and really, that's just the digital version of what we do live. So yeah, Jimmy or Mariah could talk a bit about it. And Mariah, you're going through it right now? Yeah. How so has it been for you? I love that we learn the material and then we're in these like pods, I guess, and it's like a small group and you process it together. And then we go through our genogram and we do it with that group of people. So we're with this core group of people through the whole course. You, you know, we like learn the material from Steve, but then we work on it together and it's like a safe space to do that. Um, and it's just been really cool, you know, when you do your genogram and you uncover all this stuff about why maybe you learn the way you think or whatever. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's been super helpful to have people to process with because just reading a book or, you know, going through a course is different if you don't have anyone to bounce ideas around with. Yeah, and I think that's where the eight month, the eight month part of it helps is that same dynamic. You're with the same group of people, you know, going through whether it's genograms or verbatims, where 
Um, it's amazing how much more three-dimensional everything gets as you can even, you know, as we're going through a verbatim with somebody in there, um, and for the listeners, a verbatim is just where you're recounting something that happened as, as verbatim as you can. So you actually write down what I said, what they said, what I was feeling when I said that, what I was feeling when they said that, and we and we just work through it together to try and pick up um, patterns or family propaganda that you're bringing into the you know, an encounter or whatever it is. And what's really cool is because we've done genograms, sometimes we were able to see those things and see those patterns because we have a more three-dimensional view of everybody. And, and all this material, I mean, it's, it's great to be able to receive it transactionally, but really where the rubber meets the road is when you actually apply it to actual instances, you know, where you say, Steve, can you flesh that out for me? And he'll, you know, he just said, exactly what his brave practice was and and that gives you so much it gives you something you could hold on to um that has a little bit um yeah, i don't know what the last word of that sentence is but it's more helpful tactile yeah 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 and the cool thing what we're excited about capable life is like say ten thousand fathers we'll have an online confidential discussion <clears throat> forum because we want to replicate these pods for people and if enough people were to sign up, we would actually create a private channel just for that group. So like if 10,000 fathers had 30 or 50 worship leaders that want to go through it together, and then you guys get your own thing, but you can still get genograms and verbatims facilitated virtually. You don't have to be in the same room. So since COVID, COVID's forced me to figure out how do I do this virtually? I've been facilitating genograms from people all over the country since COVID. And it works. You're on Zoom and all of that same great group dynamic is working. So, yeah, we're super excited to. That sounds so good. Yeah, I can't wait to to look more into that. Um, My wife is halfway through a master's degree in counseling right now. And so she's done the, she's got a poster board with her genogram. And it's it's really, it's full color. It's pretty awesome, you know. I'm like, I should probably do one of those. Because I think I do fall into the, one of the things you talked about in the book was, well, if you don't know the context behind the text that you got, you'll interpret it with the most pathological yeah. <laughs> interpretations possible. And I've, I've done that kind of stuff. And I can see how some of that goes back to childhood. Counseling has helped me identify a lot of that. But I want to ask about, with, with the leadership stuff that you guys have learned and that you're so fluent in, I can see it working quickly and immediately with your team, like your worship band or your staff, um, how does it, though, affect like worship leading or preaching even? Because it's hard to, I mean, obviously you can't do for 300 what you can do for three, but there are still things you can do, right? So how does it find its way into your direct ministry with the congregation, not just with the band or the team? I think my knee-jerk reaction there, um, which may not directly address your question, but one of the things that really got me excited about family systems theory is the, um, just like anxiety is contagious, so is differentiation um, to some degree to where you can have an effect on a part of the group that you actually never interact with. Because Okay, can I pause you? Because yeah. some people might not know about family systems theory or differentiation. Okay. Can you yeah. talk about both of those real quick? Sure. sure. Yeah, so the idea of family systems theory um, is that any group that you're in contact with, so when you talk about band or when you talk about your actual family, any social gathering, you form a system. And so you're each interconnected to each other emotionally, and there's emotional reactivity that happens. 
And so whether you like it or not, you're part of a system that, you know, if you don't know that it's there, then you can feel powerless to do anything about it. But what's amazing, uh, what, what gets me excited about it is it's not, and it's probably the way that I'm wired to where it feels exponential to the work that I do can have a bigger impact than, you know, just the actual work. I love everything, that anything that's scalable gets me excited. Um, and so the, the theory is, is that you can show up differently in your system and the whole system responds to the way that you're showing up differently. And they're forced to, you know, either, like, like, let's say you were an overfunctioner and you start to function more appropriately, that slack um, will get absorbed eventually by the group. There'll be sabotage and things that happen, you know, between now and then. I'm making it sound too oversimplified. But the reason why I bring that up in your what you asked is that it it is, yes, easy to view in, you know, the band scenario where you can see it happening. But I feel like I've seen it happen congregation-wide uh, because of Steve's leadership and because of incorporating with the leaders in the church. Each of us try our best to show up in a non-anxious way and to, to notice what's happening and respond the way that we want to versus a emotional reactivity. And it's like a contagious thing that I think spreads. Everybody obviously has to choose whether or not they want to pursue the material or become aware and choose to change. And it's all hard. But... Um, I just, the, the anxiety is hard too. It's just, we're used to it. You know, it's like when you, when you're tired at 8 PM, you've, you've done it and you haven't chosen to do it. I'd rather choose to put in the hard work um, because I believe there's freedom on the other side that scales. Yeah. And talk about differentiation because you, the book talks about enmeshment. I think we, we definitely identify it. Our, our life has changed drastically. I told you in the last year um, and we've looked, back and done the post-mortem and realized, wow, there was so much unhealthy stuff going on in our own leadership and in our own, what we were bringing to it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what differentiation looks like and how it's different than dissociation? Yeah. Um, I'm happy to, but I just talked the whole time. So, okay. Um, yeah. So within family systems, there's a togetherness force and there's an individuality force. And those two forces can be at odds with each other. And differentiation is, is towing the line of being able to be connected with people without being emotionally reactive. So um, if you're anxious and I'm connected with you without recognizing what's yours and what's mine, just like, you know, livestock catch anxiety, it works the same way in humans where, oh, yeah, so you can spook one, um, uh, whether it's a cattle or whatever, the whole herd will react to that one interaction. Um, so we do the same thing. We, we're, I guess, more advanced than cattle, but a little bit, but in some ways. Yeah, so the, the magic of differentiation, which is very difficult, is being able to stay connected to somebody without automatically receiving the anxiety that they have um, versus cutoff or disassociation where I say, um, now I'm suddenly apathetic to what your issue is. And I don't want to catch it, so I'm going to create space or distance or apathy to keep you. Mm. And we'll just keep this light. We'll keep it superficial. Sure. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. A lot of leaders swing wildly from one to the other as a defense mechanism. So a lot of, a lot of your listeners can actually measure themselves. They'll go from what, what's called enmeshment or codependency. Then they'll get fed up and they'll go to cutoff as their reaction. And so it's usually an internal process. So you'll be so worried about what someone thinks, but then you'll get so exhausted by it. You'll say, I don't care what they think. Right. And you'll, you'll just cut them off 
but it's the ability to actually stay connected to somebody, even someone who's hostile toward you. Now, there's obviously boundaries. You know, there's a certain category of people, abusive people, pathological people. You really have to have your boundaries on. But this material allows you to connect to a much wider range of people and, can, and it forces you to see them, what I think is a gospel lens, as human beings rather than as a monster. Because <laughs> I think what we do is we try to demonize people so we can justify our own anxiety. So differentiation is a power tool, and it's really hard, as Jimmy said. It's not easy. So what I was doing on that Monday text was practicing like differentiate, and it took two hours. I, I was unavailable to my family. Because I, I knew if I don't practice differentiation, I'm going down a bad rabbit trail. And it will, it will harm this good relationship I have. Not because of this person, but because of my own anxiety. So yeah, it's a power tool for sure. And it seems like what, what's happened politically and with social media and everything else in the last few years, um, I've recognized my own reactivity I mean, I've dealt with it with my parents in my house a month ago when they visited and we got into something and all of a sudden it's like, we're really mad at each other, you know, because we think differently about something. And so I've, I've tried to process that. I tried to spend a lot of time in prayer before going back home for Thanksgiving, you know, and try to not, not face that again. But my, my question and my struggle is how do you... Like, how do you stand in solidarity with people and still be unemotionally reactive on their great, behalf? What a great, great question. So some of what we've been sharing is reactive. You notice you're anxious. Now you're going to go ahead and practice a tool. Another power tool to differentiation is being proactive. So you know you're going home for Thanksgiving. You know it's a potential challenge. So differentiation requires you say, well, what are my core values of behavior? And what do I know to be true about me and my loved ones? And so, for example, I practice this on Twitter. I've really tried, since the book came out, I've tried to use Twitter as a way to build people's knowledge about what I do. Yeah. And Twitter is a dumpster fire of crazy and also wonderful. So I thought I better make myself a set of values for social media. Because I don't trust my ability in the moment because there's a thing in me that comes from my family of origin of putting people in their place. I, it's part of, like, I think Jimmy mentioned family propaganda. This would be a phrase we use when we're doing a genogram. We're looking for what's the family propaganda that's been handed down to you that you just think is true that isn't always true. I'm, in, I'm sorry to say in the Cuss family, the family propaganda is terrible. Cusses are always right. If we say it, it is true. And Jimmy, Jimmy's worked with me a long time. He, can, he would have dozens of examples. Even though I've known this since I was 24, when it was first shown to me, a very painful moment in my life, um, I, it still comes out. And so then, okay, social media, some idiot posts some stupid thing. There's this thing in me that says I'm required to put them in their place. Uh, it's crazy. And, but because I have this set of values I've already forged, I can rely on my values when my anxiety is unreliable. So that's another way to differentiate is to really get clear on what's true about my relationship with these people, what's true about how I want to show up regardless of how they show up. My favorite thing, I'm, I'm trying to, like my favorite thing about family systems theory, which is this is what we're talking about is this theory, is how much it requires that I take responsibility for myself. And how much it 
does not give me room to blame and hide, which is blaming and hiding is exactly what we do when we sin. And so that's why I think we get so excited about this theory and, and all the work we've done to show how it fits with the gospel is because it stops you from saying, oh, it's the, they should know better. They're the crazy people. Um, and in fact, when, when we're teaching this, most of our rookie students uh, will come to us at some point and try to get us to help them wield it against someone. Mm-hmm. They'll say, how do I fix this? But we're like, what? <laughs> no, no. It's how do you stop? being as reactive yourself. Yeah, it does. I, I still find it difficult to, you know, um, so a real, a real time instance would be, uh, goodness, let's say systemic racism or something like that. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and something that's really evocative. Right. So i I feel so from talking with so many black worship leaders and connecting with so many, um, just black worshipers, I feel so heartbroken for what, um, a lot of the black community in America has faced, and it's probably different in Australia, but... In, no, it's in, not different Okay, so I feel a fire in me for racial justice. Um, but then there are others, because of how things have become polemic and polarized and everything else, um, there's a lot of what I would say very ignorant vitriol coming that says there's no such thing as that racism. Yeah. It's yeah, all it imagined. So I, I find myself having a hard time being differentiated and unemotional... In that conversation, and it's not even for myself. Um, I'm sure that there's my own stuff that's going on there, but I feel like, as a Christian, I need to fight for these people. You know, so how does how do I do that? Another man, it's seriously another great case. So a couple of things: we differentiation is not being unemotional; it's it's being not emotionally reactive. So it's a subtle difference. You can feel passionate. You can passionately communicate with someone but you're not catching their anxiety and you're not letting them catch yours. That's differentiation in a nutshell. So you can feel strongly and feel emotional. In fact, since the book came out, we've, we've renamed it from non-anxious presence to calm presence because we think non-anxious is a misnomer. Right. And you can even be anxious and differentiated. Now, let's take systemic racism. Um, you have a strong conviction because you've listened and had your own journey as a person of privilege. Others are saying, well, CRT and all of this stuff, right? right? So what we would be, if we were coaching you, we'd say, well, family systems theory just says you can't, first of all, you can't lead someone who's not moving toward you. So how much can you actually change another person's mind? And probably an evidence that you're anxious is you have more power in in your belief that you can change someone's mind than you really can. So that would be the first to get really clear on what am I actually trying to accomplish with this person? Because you're, you're offended or assaulted by their ignorance. And so then what we would help you do, probably with this tool Jimmy mentioned, we'd probably have you do a verbatim. And we would be helping you look at what are the assumptions that you have. So what I would assume, so now I'm making assumptions, Aaron, so these may not be right. You probably assume that more insight from you will change their mind. So we would gently, in about an hour and a half, do you, would you like to explore that assumption? And you, let's say you say, yeah, I would like to explore. Then we'd be just, well, let's dig into that. Can you actually change someone's mind with more insight from you? Because systems theory is a study of what's called homeostasis. So we're, we're getting a little more sophisticated now, but 
the more you try to convince them, the harder they have to work to stay the same. So your best effort and very earnest attempt to show them insight is actually entrenching them into their opinion. And that just describes our society in a very simplistic way. But what a verbatim does is it relaxes you. We are now a safe, let's say Mariah and Jimmy and I were your verbatim group. We're a safe community for you to explore things that may be cagey in other cultures or other situations. And you can explore your assumptions about this. And then the, the other assumption is, um, is that if you don't convince them, no one will. And so then we would be encouraging you to practice curiosity instead of sharing insight. And that would look like, well, tell me more about that belief. And, and then depending on how manipulative you want to be, or how many people of color have you talked to? Or have you run this by someone of a person of color? In which case they'll say, well, yeah, Candace Owens, you know. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Um, but that would be a journey that you'd go on. I don't know if that helps, but, but it's kind of that idea that you have to defend yeah. God. Um, yeah. When you talk about not having to have the last word um, and all that stuff, it's, it's just so hard. But have you, se- have you guys seen societally that, that shift even re- I just feel like it wasn't like this a few years ago. Um, or maybe it was, and I was just naive. But I feel like our whole society, and it's definitely permeated our congregations, yeah. everything's fraught. And it's all, there's landmines everywhere. And I really feel for senior leaders, um, but even for worship, worship pastors and worship leaders, like if you want to say anything, you're going to alienate a whole bunch of people. You're going to ostracize. Um, does it have to be that way? Because I, I just see um, big celebrities in the Christian world basically not saying anything, and so they're not losing anyone. Yeah. But I have zero interest in what they have to say because there's, no, there's nothing there. Yeah. Um, so does it have to be you just play it safe and not offend people? Or is there a way that we can, we can do this w- well and wisely and lovingly? Well, that's, it's, as you guys were talking, the thing that, is really rising up in me is, is actually something that I remember hearing you say, Steve, one of the first Sundays I came to discovery and it was, it was actually one of those moments where I was like, yep, I want to be a part of this church. And it was, I'm going to get the line wrong. Of course, now that I um, am thinking about it too much, but the, the heart of it is, you know, when we look at this material and we look at our faith, like this, this material, in my opinion, it's it's bankrupt without incorporating faith into it and the freedom in Christ and all that stuff. And to get around to what I heard Steve say was he said, you know, if you um, we're called to love people who are breaking our convictions. And so our orientation on our convictions and how that informs the people who are breaking them, we don't have to actually cave on our convictions to love the people who are breaking them. Um, and I know that's not getting exactly what you're saying because there is a challenge that needs to be, you know, you do need to address things. You can't just play it safe. But I do think that the the piece that I have to keep reminding myself is even with all this material is incorporating, you know, grace, love, the, the, the miraculous power of the gospel. And when I try and, you know, muscle my way into being less anxious or whatever it is um, versus looking at some of these things as naming them so that I can actually take them to Jesus and say, you know, just like the fruits of the Spirit, I want peace, patience, kindness. I also want these things 
So in these unnavigatable things where like we're looking for the silver bullet, um, for me, I just keep going back to, it's not that we punt and we say we don't do anything about it, but we can't forget to bring in um, all of the overlays that that um, our faith informs us to do. Yeah. Uh, let's go back, Mariah. I'd love to hear how some of the leadership anxiety management stuff that you've learned has affected your worship leadership. I get with the grumpy bass player and things like that, and we can talk more about that because so helpful um, to think about how we're intersecting with our teams. But even with the congregation, how has some of this stuff trickled down into that leadership? Or has it? Well, I'm fairly new to it. so. Yeah. Um, but I think when you initially come into something like stepping into the shoes of somebody else and you're like, all right, I'm leading now. Like what? Like it's all brand new and you don't know what to expect. And I think removing the need to have these people respond in the way that you think they need to respond um, has been huge. And just like when I first started and it was before I even heard any of Steve's stuff, I just had this, like, I need people to think that I know what I'm doing and I can't look stupid in front of anybody. Um, But removing that pressure from yourself and also removing the pressure from, well, I need the congregation to experience God this morning and they need to get something really big out of this worship set um and just leaving that at the feet of jesus and recognizing that's not actually like in a sense it's my job to help usher in the presence but it's also not my responsibility to make these people have an encounter with jesus because that's not on anybody as a human so um it's been very freeing to be like all right i'm doing my best but also like i don't need everyone to think that i'm the best at this or that i know everything um, and that has not removed anxiety, but I recognize that need and I don't have to respond to that. Yeah. Steve, what's something that you've seen in Mariah's leadership where she's brought the growth that she has experienced individually into her, you know, corporate leadership? Yeah. Yeah, Mariah, ha- I hope this doesn't sound like an old dad, but Mariah happens to be a phenomenally um, settled person at her age, like just, you know, most of us are insecure on the stage cause it's so vulnerable. And I think one of the things, cause Jimmy and I were the primary people that hired her. That was what we really noticed early is like, boy, this is a grounded human being. So that was, that's still, I think she came in grounded. Um, and then it was neat just to hear her talk about her own journey. Cause for us, we would say, make sure you make some mistakes. Mm-hmm so that you can get over the fear of getting it wrong early. Sometimes we'll even prescribe mistakes, but like it's that brave practice thing. If people are playing it too safe, we'll say, you better make a big mistake this week. Like give me an example. Oh, so we had an intern come in and he was, he he suffered from perfectionism. Everything he had, he, he believed, we'd really try to help people name a lie really concretely. So we helped him name it down to, I believe I have to get it exactly right the first time every time, even if I've never done it before. It was that concrete. I believe I have to get it exactly right every time, the first time, even though I've never done it before. So we're always trying to help people with those superlative words, every and always and must. And he was responsible for ordering the catering food for a volunteer banquet for his ministry. And it was like 100 people. And we said, okay, you either have to intentionally run us out of food or have, have us swimming in way too much food. And you can't tell your boss. 
who's my employee. Like, so basically he can't tell his boss that this is some dumb hack that it, the lead pastor is making him do. And he's like, are you serious? We're like, no, you're going to do this. So, cause that's great practice. And so I, I, you know, we meet every other week and I remember getting the email from his boss, from Jen, all star female. Hey everybody. She puts in the email. We've got a lot of leftovers and it's all in the staff fridge, you know? So next week we get with him like, how did it go? How did it go? And he's like, it was really disappointing. I thought she was going to be mad at me. And she didn't, didn't bother her at all. And that's when we can really build, look at what are all the assumptions? So his inner critic is so strong that he can't handle it staying inside. So he's projecting it onto her. And I've noticed that I, I have an inner critic, but it's not as harsh as some people's. And I've said to a couple of my employees, when they'll say to me, I was afraid I was going to get fired for something that never. And I've actually had to learn to say to them, I just want to share how much that hurts me, that you've worked for me for seven years. And you, you are saying to me, oh, I don't really think you'd fire me. Well, you just told me that. But what it is, is their inner critic is so condemning, they have to externalize it onto me. Um, so I kind of lost the question in that. But that would be an example of building cultural health. I'll be like, well, so we, we really challenge people on self-talk. And we don't let people get away with condemning language. We try to do that where it gets sophisticated is you try to do it in a way that don't then condemn themselves for condemning language, right? Like all these tools, the devil can use, but to say to this person that really hurts me. Oh, I don't want to hurt you. Well then can you do more deeper work on the message Mm -hmm. you're telling yourself? Cause the idea that, so that was him. He came in saying, I thought, I thought my job would be on the line. She didn't even care. And then helping him understand, and he was raised in a family where you, you get it wrong and you're yeah. in big trouble. So with me, I, so I shared part of moving here has rattled my security, and I've, I didn't know I needed to be perceived as important or whatever. So what's, what's a course that someone like that could, could run with Brave New Action to face that? I, I just would welcome input. Is it still, it's still happening. I still yeah, feel it. Yeah, and you'll feel it for, how, how long would you say, Jimmy? Oh, man. I mean, yeah, it's one of those, it's where we pull out the stat of the, the baseball players that hit, you know, 300 or are doing a really good job. I think it's, it's, it's reminding us that, you know, I think that after years of really intense practice, if I get it right, you know, three or four out of ten times, then that's a raging success. Is that fair? Because a surgeon who does, who passed three hundred <laughs> is killing seven hundred. Like, yeah. like, is that a fair yeah, metaphor? Fair. You know, like, I because I, it's not life or death. You're not killing. Right? Yeah. yeah I'm also not hitting grand slams, <laughs> <laughs> or I'm getting paid. You know. Yeah. If you if you play a G sus when it should be a G. <laughs> no, that doesn't bother me. I can laugh at those mistakes. Well, so step number one is you're going to have to intentionally. This is where it gets tricky on a podcast. Because now everyone's going to know it. You have to figure out a way to intentionally be pretty unimpressive in a meeting or in a worship setting. Um, That's one option. You kind of have to flesh out what works for you and what fits, but you have to hack the system. And then you're measuring, okay, what happened in me and what happened in others? Um, And then the other hack you can do is you can simply name it to people. You can go into a meeting and say, hey, this is kind of awkward, but I'm working on this need to be impressive. So I just wanted you to know I'm trying. And even naming it will really 
But Kurt Thompson says we name things to team things. You get into a meeting, yeah, just deflates it. Uh, that, that would help too. And then I think you're setting your stopwatch for three years. And then you're also recognizing I will always struggle with it. Like my whole life, I'll want to try to make a good impression. Yeah. And it seems like it could become an overwhelming um, frontier to explore. Not just the, this idea of I need to be perceived as important or whatever. But all my different needs with what Twitter does, what, what Instagram has done, the things that I am presented with of not being this enough, not being far enough, not being successful enough, not being whatever, um, it's... It can, I just, sometimes I feel like, I was doing a prayer session once with this guy um, named Ed who came up with all this theophostic stuff. Mm-hmm. And the picture that I felt like the Lord showed me of, of where I'd put all these emotions was like behind this locked door. And he was like, what's going to happen if you open it? I was like, I'm going to drown. Like, it's way too much. And I grew up, so part of my upbringing in my family, we didn't do conflicts. So I never saw my parents have a disagreement you know, and so obviously that's worked its way into my marriage and, and Megan's family disagreed very vehemently and passionately and all the rest. And so we've had such a funny mix for 20 years of trying to figure out how to do conflict, how to do differentiation, how to do all this stuff. And so I guess as I just sit here and process, I just think some of this could be paralyzing, almost like the perfectionism thing can be paralyzing of... I mean, where do I even start, yeah. you know? And who's going to help me with this? And I could, I, I could just get lost in this frontier of trying to work on my stuff. So should I just toe the party line? And, yeah, right. What do you say to a leader who's like that? I mean, I feel that, but I don't think I'm alone just, in that. You know, I, I feel like the work that we're already doing is so hard. We just don't know it. And so we look at the mountain ahead and we're like, oh, I don't want to get into all that. You know, that seems like too long a road or too tough of a climb. Um, Just speaking from my own experience, after taking the dive and seeing the scalable impact of that energy that I reclaim from not spinning, you know, Steve's talking about two weeks spinning to two hours. Just gain back the better part of two weeks. I mean, that's that's sizable. And of course, that represents, you know, a a lot of work over a long period of time. But it, it I it excites me because it. And I'm an efficiency, I like to be efficient. So of course I would like, it's just my wiring. But I, I look at the mountain ahead and go, man, every inch that I take on this ground gives me more energy to maybe take, whether it's another inch the next time or it's three inches. Um, it's, a, it's like a snowball effect, I guess. Yeah, but I get what you're saying. It feels overwhelming when you're like, how do I begin, right? And even some of your questions today, like, how do we begin? The book was designed to be a building block chapter by chapter and then Capable Life's the same. When you log on, you'll actually have a roadmap laid out for you. And we made it these 10-minute videos so that like no one has an excuse. Like we're not looking to make you do an intensive for three months and drop everything. Just you can do a video a week if you want and take a year and, and ease your way in. And um, But but. For me, the conviction came, I, I used to live in Las Vegas and my role in the, I was in a really large church like New Life, a Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and I was the crisis intervention guy. And so I did crisis intervention and I trained crisis intervention. And I did a little bit of preaching, but my bread and butter was people in crisis coming for rescue. And I did so much work with domestic violence. It was, mm-hmm. it was horrifying. 
And I really had to learn how do you help, it was almost all women, who don't believe it can ever be better. And I think a lot of what we try to do in our class is from the lessons of that, like it can be better. That, like we actually use domestic violence language to talk about anxiety. That's the relationship you have with it. It's harsh. It tells you it can never change. It, you have to have it. And so that's why chapter two of the book and some of the module that we'll do is a theology of anxiety. If you can understand the gospel of anxiety and the message it's sending you, you suddenly run to the gospel of Jesus. And so in my life, as much as as long as I've been a preacher and I'm a theological nerd, I love talking theology. My biggest transformation has been when I've integrated this thing called systems theory through the cross. Because I, I think our chronic anxiety is competing for the good news of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that Monday night tweet, I, I'm like, I'm resting in Christ. My identity is not dependent on this person, whatever she wants to talk about, my reaction. It's, it's Jesus died to free me from all of that. And that's like for me where the rubber hits the road. And another prayer we've cultivated, I don't think it's in the book. I think it developed it after the book came out is... Um, so the simplest prayer is what if I was at least as kind to myself as God is? Or what yeah. if I was at least as blank to myself as God is? Yeah. And suddenly you realize, why am I believing my own inner critic over the voice of God? Like that became for me a sober moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. easy though, right? I mean, yeah, it takes faith to believe God. Right, that's what it <laughs> is. Like right. When he that's says it stuff, it's like, yeah. that's it's hard to believe. and gives them actual, like, meat and bones. You're like, oh, wait, this actually, this truth, I can believe it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I want to ask one more question about leadership, but then I, I'd love to just switch, and I'd love to talk about worship from um, your pastoral perspective yeah. and you guys' um, experience in the worship leaders thing. And I'm trying to find my question because... I asked um, some friends, I told them I was going to interview you. Um, oh, so I said, what questions would you want to hear? And this is a great question um, from one of our coaches in our school, um, Aaron Williams. He said, how do you fight decision panic when a moment is pressing, you feel vulnerable, but the way forward is unclear? Like on the stage? No, um, just as a leader of an organization, leader of a team. Um, okay. You like COVID, should we open how many people? Sure. Yeah. Mariah, you should play this game. <laughs> uh, um, I don't, I think what this season has taught a lot of us is that nobody knows the right answer. And a lot of times when you're in a leadership position, you're like, well, I have to make the right decision. And that reflects on me, my abilities. And like, I'm in this position, but removing the idea that just because you're in a, leadership position that doesn't mean that you have all the right answers and making a decision is the first step towards something if you're paralyzed with fear and you're not making a decision at all then that's even worse than making the wrong decision um and people have a lot more grace for you than you think that they do and that i think we have learned a lot through this season is just like we're gonna try this and then next week it's completely different and sorry guys, we're changing the plan again, but it's been like people respect that and almost respect being able to say, hey, we actually don't know what we're doing, but we're just going to pray and try to listen to the Holy Spirit and make decisions based on that. And I just have seen people be so responsive, kind, and gracious towards that. 
Yeah. One of, one of the things we do with people when we're consulting is we try to identify the sources of anxiety. And one of them is not knowing what to do. Anytime you're a leader and you don't know what to do, you're going to be anxious. So just knowing that helps. Then you're like, oh, well, that's normal. Like my anxiety is normal. And so then, you know, you've been asking some questions about how do we actually create a whole organization around it? When you get up in front of your congregation, you say, we, here's the call we're making. We might be wrong and we might change our mind. What it does is it reveals the bullies. So I've got about six bullies in our church okay. and they've always been this way. Uh, as long as they've been in the church, they always like to say, that's dumb, you're dumb, that's wrong, whatever. But it uh, pulls them out of the woodwork. And now you know what you're dealing with there. But then it also creates help with the 95 or 98% of the congregation that says, fair enough. Um, and even out of that 98% that says, well, I would have done it differently. But it diffuses any belief that we are somehow smarter than we really are. So we encourage people just to say, we don't know what to do. Um, it's really hard. But here's, here's the course. So in the, in the absence of what to do, we're going to be, try to be clear. So we might be clear and wrong. Mm -hmm. And sorry for the whiplash we're causing you, that kind of stuff. Um, that, that helps relax the whole congregation. Yeah, uh, yeah I think just, I mean, the, the whole framework of the question is, I mean, how many times does that happen? All the time, right? <laughs> the it's it's urgent or the perception of the decision is urgent don't know what to do don't know if i'll be right and and all of that comes to the surface of all the different idols that we have you know imposter syndrome there's all kind of things at play there and and it's why it's so helpful to to intentionally plan sabotage or, or things that don't go well because then you can you don't have to to spin about the what ifs i have a friend of mine that you know plans out the worst case scenario all the time and and times 10 on every decision it's like well this could happen this could happen and plans for it kind of like you're saying preparing for the meeting that you know only one of these can happen but i pre prepare for 10. you don't get that back like those all happen emotionally like they're real but they're not real yet it hasn't happened and so um there's some there's a freedom in going well here's where i'm going we'll see what happens i could be wrong you know but we'll know we'll know when that happens versus worrying about it and i i think that me I take all that stuff and there's something in me that just goes, that's not right. You can't do that. Like that's a, that's the quickest pathway to becoming irresponsible to not taking responsibility for your actions. There's all this fallout that I immediately go from A to Z. And it's like, nope, that's not actually the case at all. It's another logical fallacy that we try and jump straight to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and church leadership is deadline based leadership. So like even this last week, I had to record my sermon Wednesday morning and it was 30 hours earlier than my normal deadline. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think it was that great. Oh, well, <laughs> that's the way it is. Like, you know, whereas before I'd be, I'd be just beating myself up for mm -hmm. should, shoulda, coulda, woulda, but um, gave my best was human size. I, I think the number one thing for church leaders who feel all this pressure is, is whatever pressure they're feeling internally and from their congregation. All I can say to them is the only pressure God expects is exactly human-sized leadership. Wow. Yeah, and you look at the leaders in the Bible, and they were no picnic. Mm -hmm. Like, like Jeremiah actually cursed God for being a leader. You know, so if you're not cursing God, then you're probably doing better than you think. And even if you are cursing God, you're at least as good as Jeremiah. So, yeah, yeah. So human-sized leadership so helps. Just to remember, I'm human-sized. God, all God wants is human-sized.
helpful. Uh, before we jump into the worship conversation real quickly, you, you have a different take on burnout. And you say it's not just about doing too much. It's actually about anxiety. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So every leader I know likes to have a full plate. So I just think the whole idea that it's because we have too much to do is is ridiculous. Um, in fact, I get lazy if I don't have too much to do. I just sit on the couch. Um, so yeah, burnout has to do with that that one more email from that person, and one more decision where you got it wrong. You know, that's it's it's unaddressed chronic anxiety. It's burnout is because of false need, and just too much time where you didn't get the false need you think you need. Um, and, and the other thing I would say, Aaron, is I've been on a lot of podcasts and now a lot of organizations where people actually want to say, help me prevent burnout. And all I want to say is burnout actually might be the best thing that happens to you because that's when you might actually finally meet the good Jesus Christ you've been telling everyone about. That The, the, the red-headed stepchild of leadership that I have run into since the book came out, I had a suspicion about it, but now I've seen it is the amount of leaders that don't believe what they proclaim. They, they can make people believe in the grace of God in a way that makes people cry. They, they're not experiencing it for themselves. And a lot of my book and our work is like this, not on my watch, kind of conviction. Like, what if we can actually help people experience the grace they tell others about? And that's where you don't burn out. But if you do burn out, maybe you'll actually encounter the grace of God and then you'll like there's always there's always gospel on the other side of burnout, and you know we're recording this a few minutes from New Life Church, and look at the journey. Like, what has God done at New Life on the other side of some really catastrophic situations? True, He's amazing. pretty good with the medium stuff. of ashes and right. tears and things like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before I let you guys go, because mostly the people who pay attention to this podcast are worship leaders and worship pastors and songwriters. I would just love to hear, and we can we can keep going further into this content, or we can just go um, thirty thousand feet here. Um, when you look at what's happening in the worship at your own church, um, the worship culture that's kind of being pushed out by the big, you know, machinery, um, what are you noticing? What what's encouraging? What's alarming? Um, what would you say to worship leaders who are listening to this? You know, who they have their anxiety journey for sure, but they also just have to pull off next Sunday. You know, what what advice, what observations? I'd love to just open it up real wide about worship. We can start with you, Mariah, because you've done several years of Bethel's yeah. School of Ministry, um, 12 months um, with these guys, which is enough time to be in the system, but still you've got fresh eyes and perspective. You haven't been there 15 years, you know. Um, so what are you observing in, in, the, in your own culture? What are you hoping to see shift in the future of the worship culture there? What are the strengths? What are the needs? Yeah, I think I came from a very saturated environment of people that wanted, like, they gave everything to be at school, right? So every worship set was life-changing, and people are weeping on the floor, and it's just um, super cool but also not necessarily the real world and I think it's easy to get discouraged when you when you don't see people responding that way uh, um, on Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Yeah, yes right like, <laughs> like why Friday night in the mountains yeah. right so um but God has worked on my heart a lot um on recognizing that that worship doesn't have to look a certain way 
And just because these people aren't responding in the way that you're used to doesn't mean that they're not worshiping me just as, you know, wholeheartedly. Um, and that's been, you know, a little hard to, you know, step into a different environment, but also I've learned a lot from it and recognized, you know, some of the things that maybe I viewed as success weren't like success. What is success really as a worship leader, you know? And I just had this idea and this picture of what it was and in my head and, and it doesn't have to be that, but also recognizing that, um, there's always room to grow. So I'm always like, okay, so what can I bring to the table, but not trying to push my own agenda in that, if that makes sense. And just, um, I don't know, being faithful to what God is asking me to do. And even if it feels like, okay, that Sunday morning, literally nobody was singing or whatever. And even now it's harder. Like we're in a smaller group of people and we're like, why are they not even wanting to be here? I don't know. But like that God is working through that as well. And maybe my husband and I talk about this a lot, but like God is, we feel like he's flipping the Western church on its head. And this idea of like consumerist church, just, I don't think that's the way it was supposed to be in the first place. And who said that worship had to be, you know, a three song set, seamless, you know, transitions perfectly musically, which we, I, I value excellence and I love that, but like, that's not what it, I don't think that's what it sounded like in, you know, the first churches. So, you know, (laughs) yeah, like finding the balance between like excellence and also like this idea of what we think it should look like. I I love what's going on globally. I, um, I, I think the problem I have personally, like the problem I'm bringing to it is I want everything. So I want radical musical diversity in the church because I think all music is a God-given thing. So I want opera and rock and like, and that's just not feasible. So I do wish the sounds of modern worship was more diverse. Groups like Common Hymnal, I think, are actually bringing some really fresh sound. Um, I also long for what you mentioned. Like Jimmy and I have lamented that most worship music that really gets to systemic injustice is just weird. Or it was just weird. I can't speak now. We haven't dug into it for a few years. But it's kind of some weird 70s folk thing. So I do long to see more systemic justice represented in worship music. I'm loving how much is being, is tackling shame. And like there is this almost therapeutic message that is getting a lot of criticism. And I love it. Um, And it's interesting because a lot of the people who criticize it are theology nerds, which I would call myself. I love a good theological robust sermon and a good emotional worship experience. I think that's a great combination. So I love like some of the, like I know Hillsong, they have a theologian in residence now where they're working. I I love that stuff. Uh, That'd be my answer right now. I wish musically it was more diverse. I think the, what the type of songs are getting really good. You know, we're all wired so differently. I've, you know, with the different things that I've been studying in the Enneagram and others, you know, we just have, fundamental differences in the way we perceive and process information. And um, I think it's inherently difficult to get a bunch of those people in a room uh, for one unified purpose. And that's one of the wonderful things about God is that, is that that's one of the reasons we all get together from different backgrounds and ideologies and things. We can come together and do something unified, but that's, that's no small feat. Um, So the worship leader from a musical perspective is trying to usher in, you know, whatever the number of different people 
plus that represents a number of different wirings and their family backgrounds and, and have a unified experience. So I think it's just worth naming that it's just stinking difficult. Um, and again, we don't punt just because it's difficult, but it's something that, that I continue to keep in my head. It's like as we pursue either getting it all, you know, I want to I have it all, I want to do it all well, tempering that a little bit. Um, and I think that one of the things that I've always valued in worship leaders, you know, ones that I respect is when I can, I can connect with maybe not their, their vocal style or the, the song choice, but there's a genuine genuineness that, 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 that has to be there for me, that, that the people that are so musically talented that, I, I mean, it's effortless to them. And that's a gift. That's a God's gift. But I've seen that come across as disconnected, or I could be making a sandwich while, doing this lick, you know, somehow. And it's so easy for me, not that, you, I, I mean, this is where I'm getting lost in my words, is I, I don't think it should be tough or you should like um, make it seem more difficult than it is for you, but capture the genuineness of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, so I'm always gravitated towards that. And then I think the other thing is just, um, I don't know how to get this message into all the hearts and minds of all that need it, but I remember hearing somewhere that if you're a part of a church, where you like all of the music, then it's it's not a very diverse situation. You know, uh, to be able to listen to a song that isn't your cup of tea should represent that there's somebody in the congregation that it is, and that you can have a new awareness of like, man, praise God that there's there's a group of people here that are connecting because of this um, in a way that I don't or can't. Um, and, I, you know, that's an uphill battle to try and get all of us on the same page, but. I love that. Like as leaders, how much should the styles of music that we play reflect what is um, versus reflect what the king? Like, but but how do we? You know, how should we appraise um, the musical offerings that we're leading with in terms of this is what our people like? Do we just cater to that, or do we stretch it and do we risk alienating people? As a, as a senior leader, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think I'm the problem in this. I'm the provocateur because I'm, I'm wanting, like, I think what I want is wrong. That's the problem. So, like, I uh, got to go to Chris Tomlin worship experience at Red Rocks, I think it was last year, and, and he pulled back some back catalog, and I think he does have a tremendous gift of creating a melody that you can sing right away. It's quite a gift. And so listening to him pull out a song from, what, late 90s that, I hadn't sung since early 2000s, therefore, yeah. and the whole crowd come alive. Mm-hmm. I, I am convinced that repetition and familiarity are required. I get it. I get that. Uh, so I've died on the hill of diversity of music. Um, but I, I personally miss the 90s CCM era when not everything was worship music, you know, where people sang about issues and things. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how helpful I am on this conversation because um, I'm, more answering as a musician, I think, than as a lead pastor. Okay. I think that's the problem. Yeah. If I really want our people engaged, familiarity and predictability are required. Yeah. Is there anything that, that either Jimmy did as a worship leader or Mariah's done where you've had to actually step in and say, let's not do that. We can't do that. Musically or um, generally in leadership or anything like that. Or have you guys ever had to experience that from Steve or from other senior leaders? I can't think of a single time, Jimmy, that I've come and said, "Let we shouldn't do that." 
in the sense of a musical set. Well, I think that's also just telling with our, our orientations. Like, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, which is part of my problem. And so he'll have grand ideas and I'll try and say, well, that's a great idea, but yeah, here's, here's what I think we can accomplish. You know, I, I, I fall into that problem of that. It's almost reversed between us. But there have been a couple of times earlier on where I'm like, well, let's do it anyway. And then it's ridiculous. Then I watch Jimmy very well-meaning. like, And I'm like, it wasn't nearly what I imagined in my head, which has no comment on him. It's because Jimmy was, I should have listened to my worship leader when he said, it's grandiose, we can't replicate it. I think, so there's that dynamic. Um, it's exposing, Well, let me flip it this way. Jimmy has a natural gift of getting people on the bus. How do you get people, what he described, all the dynamics as they walk into that room, how do you get them from that to wanting to worship? Uh, Mariah's natural gift, I think, is taking us where we've never been before. So I think the two of these guys is a killer combination. And then Mariah's bringing a charismatic edge that neither Jimmy or I have that we want and ask for. Um, so that's been great. We, we were in, Jimmy and I were in England together. Uh, at the conference you and I were talking about before we recorded. Yeah. And, you know, everyone over there, even Anglicans are charismatic. Right. Uh, it's crazy. What in the world? Is that allowed? Oh, you know, so jealous. It's yeah. amazing. And that, I think, ultimately is what I'm looking for, mm-hmm. is an Anglican charismatic experience where the, you're rooted in the prayers of the saints and good rock music. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the problem. It's still it's hard to get. Yeah. Liturgicostals. Yeah, yeah, is that what it's called? That's what Andrew Wilson calls it. He's great. He's at King's in, in the UK and... He has a book called, what's it called? Oh, shoot. Oh, it's called You Charismatic. It's great. Just bring both. Why can't we have both? The thing I want to say, to, to, I feel like I'm talking too much, Aaron, but as a preaching guy to an audience of worship leaders, I just want to say every time I've been in a developing country like Kenya or Haiti, they worship like their life depends mm-hmm. on it. That's my experience is they, they are singing together almost as if they would rather do that than eat. And I remember my first experience of it, I was really struck because I had a more preference relationship with worship. Like, yeah, maybe I will, maybe I won't. And I remember coming back thinking, oh, I'm worshiping and I'm going to worship loud from now on. Uh, and, and the second thing uh, I would say is, um, Jimmy, at this conference Jimmy and I went to a couple of years ago, there was a missionary to Brazil. And he somehow got everyone in his church on time. He said it was the only Hispanic culture where the people come on time to church. And all he did every week was he would say, uh, whatever time church starts, 9 a.m., that's when the king arrives. He had a very charismatic kind of view of worship that we're ushering in God's presence. So we're, and in any royal situation, no one walks in after the king. The king's always the last one to arrive. So he had locked people out. <laughs> and after years of this, everyone comes to church on time. And I came away from that conference two years ago now wanting to double down on the value of get your, get your butt in the seat on time and expect to participate with the king. So I just want to say what worship leaders are doing really matters, really, really important. Uh, and it's hard because they're the ones that are starting a cold room and it's a real thing. So that- well, that's what makes me wonder this whole, you know, combo of liturgical and charismatic, you know, the... I, I, it's a question, really. I don't know, but is is the part of the liturgical muscle? You know, you're you're the one that's doing the thing that moves the. That's the whole definition of liturgy, right? Is that the the work of the people? 
And so recognizing your part that you play in it, and, and it sure, it can look different in liturgical churches where they're not combining a charismatic musical response in those things, but there's a muscle that they've developed where they realize, you know, it's not those people on stage that are creating this offering for us collectively as the room. It's that they're facilitating something that all of us are participating in. I think it's a, I just wonder if that's the magic sauce of like, you know, combining those two things, if if it's taking a muscle that they've developed in a different context and kind of applying the command to sing along with it versus a, a different interaction with music, you know, otherwise. Outside of the church, your interaction with music is, you know, appreciating the beauty and all the true things that it is, but in the church, it's slightly different. It's it's an actual command. It's like, you're going to sing, <laughs> whether you're tone deaf or whether you enjoy music or not, and and that's something that we're pretty uncomfortable with, I think. It's not a popular thing to say, you're going to sing whether you like it or not. It sounds like a, you know, a militant, you know, household where it's like, you're going to eat these veggies, you know, because they're on your plate. Right. Oh. Yeah. I've often thought that the, the diet thing is a good analog for this where with our kids, you know, our kids are kind of grown now. Um, but when they're little, man, if you just, if you don't lead, they're just going to eat junk all the time yeah. and they're going to be pretty, um, effete. Yeah, I mean that's the human condition, right? Left to our own devices, we just we just yeah. destroy ourselves. But we've got to nourish and look after holistic growth, not just preferential yeah. taste. You know, so I'm I am really curious about because even at New Life, I mean, there's different congregations, there's different um, you know seven different congregations, and they each have their diff- distinct flavors. But I'm still just learning. I'm in a new system now, yeah, and right. I was I was somewhat at the epicenter of this the system I was in before, and so I'm just like really stumbling my way into you did that wrong. No, we're, that's not what we do, and and I'm just like bumping into stuff left, right, and center of oh yeah, okay, that's how I, I used to do it. I need to learn how. Curious to see all of. It. Well, you know, to go back to your, I think your original question of you know where should it land. We, we did an original music night. It was before Mariah, you came. We did a handful of them where we just, it was like an experiment where we just said, hey, you know, we've written some music. We just want to get your take on it. You know, what's, what's the next of these songs? Which one should we bring to the whole congregation? That kind of thing. And it was largely just a learning thing for us. And I was surprised. We had, we had some, you know, songs that we thought were either too sad or too dark or too raw or whatever. But it was an environment where we had the freedom to... You know, it wasn't a Sunday morning. It wasn't, you know, the risk wasn't as high. And I think that we were all surprised at, because um, it, it was like a survey. It was like, you know, give us your unfiltered opinions. It was really painful to read some of them, right? Yeah. But, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, it was, it was well, what my takeaway was, is that, you know, I was surprised at how much um, of a felt need it seemed was for the singing about things that don't have a bow, you know, tied on singing about, you know, the angst uh, and the realities that we face to where it's, yes, we're in the now and the not yet. And, and we don't always have to to tie it up and leave it, you know, because we all feel those things. And so when musically we're taken through a journey where, you know, we're meant to come to a conclusion that we're maybe not at totally that day. Um, yeah, I don't know what to do with that because, you know, from a thousand person or 10,000 person level if some people come in with great days it feels wrong to just be like all right let's let's just go down in the depths all together now you know is there a time and place for those things I don't know the answer to that 
one of our um, grads from school was a really sharp guy in South Carolina. He uh, he studied through like verse by verse to the entire book of Psalms to try to um, dissect like, all right, how much of the Psalms are objective? You know, we're seeing something that's just true and how much is subjective? It's, it just depends, you know? Are you feeling that or aren't you? So a mighty fortress is our God, objective. I love you, Lord, subjective, right? Um, and so I always like, kind of audit um, our annual, how, what songs do we do this year? And are those songs, if I had to score it crudely, you know, was that, do we skew towards objectively true stuff about God or subjectively um, true stuff about ourselves? And so anyway, he went through the whole, so I've, I've done that for all of our songs and we teach all of our students to do that, like take an audit every year. What did you sing? Because you might be surprised. If, you, if you're 90, <laughs> you're not 90, no, it's probably 90, but if you're like 80% singing about how much you love God and 20% actually singing about God, be aware of that, you know? And, and so anyway, this student went through um, the whole book of Psalms and found it's pretty, it's close to 50-50. We need to be singing about God, but we also need to be singing about our experience. But, it, but he said the, the big breakdown from what's going on in the Psalms to what's going on in our worship uh, repertoire these days is how much... Uh, good grief, how much like wrong stuff is in there? It's like theologically wrong, but it's still, it's raw and it's real and they're feeling it and it's in there. You know, so Psalm 13, like, uh, how long will you forget me? Well, does he forget you? You know, or Psalm 5, you hate those who do it. Does he? No, he doesn't. You know, so there's stuff that's wrong. It's theologically wrong and it's in there. Right. You know, Um, and and I... For sure. Terrible theology by Job's idiot friends. Yeah. And some of it has made its way into our worship songs as truth. Right. Yeah. 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 So just looking at the at the Bible, what worship entails, and and how comprehensive it is with the human experience, and then with looking at what's going on in in our modern worship experience, and how, gosh, how limited it is, and how you can basically only bring this one part of your experience to it, and you, you're kind of a liar on a lot of times where you're singing how much you love Jesus and. No, you don't. You know, you haven't. You've, you haven't loved them at all, you know, very well. You've been terrible uh, or whatever. I'm, I'm so fascinated by all of that. And I hope that the worship um, stream can broaden to include more of our reality. Because uh, I do think that Jesus is able to intersect with all of it and not just looking for our piety. But anyway, um, we don't need to get into all that. I, do, I am looking at how long I've kept you. I can't believe it. Um, before I let you go, I just wonder if there's any last thoughts um, it can be where we started. It can be about the worship thing. Um, as we've chatted, if there's any last reflections that have come to your mind that you'd like to share with this crew, Mariah, we'll start with you. Uh, um, I guess just that kind of talking about when you're looking at the mountain of like how much you have to work through and like it's so overwhelming i read a quote or a meme or something on the internet about how when someone's afraid to start a degree program because they feel like they're too old and they're like well in four years i'm going to be 40 and like well i don't want to do that now but then in four years you're still going to be 40 and like are you going to be at the same spot you're at now or are you going to have grown somewhere so it's like removing the pressure of like i have a tendency to feel like i need to do it quickly and like do it well and get it done and move on or whatever but it's like even if it is going to take you four eight ten years whatever to like 
get delve into this stuff, like you're still going to be further than where you are right now. And I don't think you ever fully conquer it either. Like the idea that you have to like arrive somewhere and then you're going to be whole. I just don't think that is realistic. I think we're always going to be working on this stuff. Yeah, I think for your comment on the Psalms, what came to my mind is um, when I've gone on spiritual retreat to a monastery and they chant the Psalms Gregorian style and they just chant them word for word regardless of what they think. And it is surreal to watch these cheerful, loving nuns chant about their enemies and how they wish their enemies would die. And yeah, <laughs> so that, that came to mind. Like maybe we should be exploring Gregorian music to help us. And then, yeah, with the with the leadership anxiety stuff, I would just encourage, like, I, I understand, I, I run a podcast as well, and I love podcasts, but listening to a podcast and reading a book, you, you won't change at all. Uh, and so just find a group of three friends you trust and just talk about this stuff. You don't have to actually, like, curriculums help. Peter Scazzera has great stuff. I've got stuff. Uh, Jim Harrington has great. There's a lot of good stuff. You don't actually have to go through a curriculum. You can just sit down on a regular basis and talk about how you're doing, what's helping. I would encourage people to 2021 find a community to have these conversations. Yeah, I think for me, I've just been on um, probably the past seven, eight years. It's just been a wholehearted chasing of freedom. Like that's just all of this material is filtering through just pursuing the goodness and the freedom that, I mean, it's for freedom that he has set us free and, you know, just God's ideal for us is not something that we have to wait for. It's not some future, only in heaven can this be real. Sure, there's a lot of the now and the not yet, but I mean, there's so much that we can actually grab hold of and claim as, no, this is a now thing and not a not yet thing. And so that's the thing that no matter what the, the material is that I and engaging in it's 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 pursuing Christ through these things um, and taking this thing that I've heard since I was a kid and going maybe this could actually be true um, and then trying it out love it yeah well I can't thank you enough for making this time and for the work that you've put in Steve to put this all on paper Ryan Jimmy thank you for being here as well just to share some of your perspectives you're so you're such refreshing company I love how it's, you're such a non-anxious group, which is perfect. Uh, such a calm, present, um, and kind. So thank you for this time. I hope that this helps a lot of leaders. Bless oh, you guys. This is a treat. Thanks for having us cool. down. This is yeah. really fun. We'll keep doing what you do, and we'll keep following it and cheering, and we'll let you know how we're doing. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Big thanks to Steve, Jimmy, and Mariah for hanging out with me this morning check out capablelife.me if you're interested in some of Steve's training and his course that you can check out online. As always, you can see more about Worship School at worship.school. And if you're not ready to take the big deep dive into the discipleship process of Defense Fathers, don't forget, you can always start your journey now by looking at mereworship.com. M-E-R-E worship.com. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging with us. See you next time.